children's church, ages four through kindergarten, can go off with the Atkinsons. All right. They're excited. And also, just so you know, we love children in the service. You do not have to put your kids in children's church. We love them in the service. If we didn't like kids in the service, we would provide children's church for all the way through high school. Um, but we don't do that. We see this as a training ground for kids. They need to hear sermons. They need to be in the service with their kids. And so, as you can see, I'm parenting in the first row all service until I get up here. So, it's okay if your kids make a little noise. We, we want them here. We want them here. One other announcement I wanted to quickly make. I don't usually make announcements before preaching, but um, if you noticed... Uh, Steve missed an announcement at the very bottom. Uh, it's because it's about him. Uh, and he's going to be, he's on his sabbatical officially now. Uh, so uh, please pray for him. Uh, he's on a nine-month sabbatical. He'll be back, uh, back on the session again uh, officially in June of next year. So pray for him uh, that he would find good rest as he's been serving as an elder here for over 10 years. So, so thank him for his service and then, uh, then pray for him um, as well. Um, we are uh, this morning in 1 Samuel, looking at chapter 29. We're going to go all the way through verse 6 of chapter 30. We're nearing the end of this book of Samuel, first book of Samuel, uh, that has been showing us how God has been faithful to Israel, how he's been faithful to raise up a king after his own heart. And we see the struggles that that king has throughout, these, throughout his life uh, before, uh, as we will see in a few chapters, the death of, of Saul. So if you would, please stand. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel 29 through verse 6 of chapter 30. This is God's word. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of, of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in, in him to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you've assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could, you, how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sang, sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And then Achish called to David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? 
And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of, the, of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great, both small and great. And they killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. And David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Bless our meditation on it. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One thing I want to point out before we jump in is the is the fact that these last chapters of 1 Samuel, um, there's some dischronology here. These, these, thing, these events are not told in exact order. And there's a reason for that. If you noticed, um, you know, we see in chapter 28, Saul and the witch of Endor uh, and Samuel and this apparition, right, who's been brought up from the dead. We talked about that last week. Saying that tomorrow you'll be killed in battle. You and your sons will be killed in battle. And it's almost like we're going back a day in chapter 29 with David and and meeting with uh, Achish and the Philistines. And and the reason these are not uh, exact in chronology is because this is the mark of good storytelling. The author here is trying to compare Saul and David. So the most important thing is not that everything is told exactly as it happened, but what he's trying to do is compare their faith or lack of faith as we see the contrast there, as we see the end of Saul's life. We see this in other places in the Bible. We see it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, in the very beginning of the Bible, where the order of events are told, the days of creation, and then in chapter 2, we sort of almost go back to day 6 as it's retold. And it's important that we see that in this, these final chapters because the question it's getting us to, to ask is where does this unfaithfulness of Saul eventually take us? If we are to be unfaithful like him, where will it end? And as we see, it ends in this judgment for Saul. You know, I spoke some hard truths to you last week because we were dealing with a hard text. If you recall 
through the words of Samuel, came back from the dead, through this, through this necromancer that Saul used, it was prohibited. Samuel said, you will be with me, you and your sons, tomorrow. You'll be dead. And so we witnessed his final pronouncement of judgment against Saul. And it, was a, it was a hard word. It was a good tale of, of caution for us, a cautionary tale. But in this text now, we get some reassurance. We get some reassurance of how God deals with his anointed servants. Not just David, but us as well. Who fail and struggle. David is failing and struggling in, in several ways. The point of this text is that God will not forsake his people. God will not forsake his people. Those are the words, the precious words of Samuel way back in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. He says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it's pleased the Lord to make him a people for himself. That is really the story of the Bible, isn't it? God has a people for himself that he won't forsake. And he's keeping David as an example of this in this, in this chapter. David is God's chosen king and nothing will get in the way of his destiny as God's choice, not his own sin, not his own suffering, not his own weakness. So this morning we're going to see that God saves in three ways. God saves in the silence. God saves in the silence. That's the first idea we're going to see. The second, he saves in your suffering. He saves us in our suffering and he saves us in the strength that he provides. We're going to look at those three truths this morning for chapter 29. First, God saves in the silence. Again, God is not explicitly mentioned by the narrator. God's actions are not explicitly mentioned. He's not, he's not uh, telling us exactly what God is doing. The only person in this chapter who speaks of God is not David. It's Achish, this Philistine king. As the Lord lives. He uses that phrase, as the Lord lives, David. God is not mentioned, but he is proactively involved, isn't he? Just because the Lord isn't mentioned doesn't mean he's not actively involved. The same thing is true for your own life and my life. God is proactively involved in your life even when it feels like he isn't, even when it feels like he's been silent, even when it doesn't seem like it. You know, I don't know what you think that people who are in ministry or your pastor, what their relationship with God is like. But I, I don't know if this surprised you, but I don't actually go out throughout the week and have these supernatural experiences with God. I don't, I don't hear him speaking to me audibly. I don't get these dreams and visions um, that a common Christian uh, never has. My relationship with God is ordinary. Just like yours, I, I expect. Here's what my routine looks like as a Christian. I, I wake up, I read my Bible, read two or three chapters, and I pray. And then I try to go be a, a loving husband and, and a loving father and, and follow the words that I just read. Um, I don't have an extraordinary uh, relationship with God. And, and, and chapters like this encourage me. It's actually the chapters that discourage me and chapters previous where Saul and David are hearing from God directly through a prophet 
or through uh, the, the Urim and Thummim, or through visions or dreams. It encourages me to read a chapter like this because this is a common life. This is David making poor decisions, aligning himself with the Philistines, and God saving him out of it anyways without hearing audibly from God. Even when we go through tragedy, even when I go through tragedy, it's, it's a normal relationship with God. When my, when my stepbrother passed away suddenly, I didn't get supernatural conversations with God. No, in fact, it was the opposite. It was me slamming my hand against the steering wheel I was driving and saying, why, God? Why? What are you doing, God? <laughs> I don't like this. I don't want this. Are you sure you're in control? It's questioning God. It's crying out to Him. It's acknowledging He's actively in, proactive in your life even when you're struggling with the ordinary trusting and walking with, with Him. God works in the silence in your life in really three ways. Undercover. He works undercover, he works unwaveringly, and he works unexpectedly. The first, undercover. God works in the silence, undercover. The point here is that God governs the universe. He governs the universe, every detail. God is not a bystander in David's life in this passage. And he's not a bystander in your life. He's intimately Involved. If you go back and think about your life, think about what he's gotten you through, think about how he's saved you from yourself often. Do you keep receipts of those? Do you keep God receipts? Reminding yourself of what took place, how he saved you, and what he's done to keep you. Paul says these amazing words in Acts 17. He says, in him we live and move and have our being." We're like fish swimming in water. If you ask a fish what's water, he wouldn't be able to tell you because you just live in it. That's the same thing with God. He is all around us. In him we move and have our being. He's around us. He's always involved in our lives. He's so present, we don't even notice his involvement. He's so present, we don't even notice his involvement. He's undercover. He's working. He's also unwavering. God works unwaveringly. He works even when we've gotten ourselves in a mess. Have you ever done that in your life? Have you, ever, have you ever had a section of your life where I really messed that up, God? I've really messed this up. What does God think of me now? David has done this at this point. Do you realize what David, what, what group he's with? He is with the Philistines, the avowed enemies of God's people, and they're about to go into battle against his own people, Israel. This is a mess that David's gotten himself into. How is he going to get out of this? That's what he's thinking. It doesn't say any of that, but I'm sure that's what David's thinking. How am I going to get out of this? I Remember why he went to the Philistines in the first place? To get away from Saul, to get away from Israel, because he was a dead man in, in Saul's eyes. He's in a mess. But God works unwaveringly for people who get themselves in messes, like you and me. I came across this quote this week. I love it. 
want you to, to remember it. Even tiny faith takes hold of the full Christ. Even tiny faith takes hold of the full Christ. It's encouraging to me. It's encouraging to me when I think of people who are struggling in my life, who maybe I was unsure about their own walk with the Lord if they passed away. But I remember that. Even a little bit of faith grabs hold of the whole Christ. He is faithful even when we're faithless. In chapter 27, David goes to to Achish and he runs away from Saul. What is he thinking? He's, he's switching teams here. And it reminds me also that the Bible is not a book about heroes. The Bible is not a book about heroes. It's a book about one hero, God. Don't read the Bible think you're, you're trying to find heroes to emulate. It's not what this is, this is about. This is, a, this is to point to one hero, God, who saves us who get in messes. Think of Jonah. As an example, Jonah makes his entire office of prophet look bad, doesn't he? Running away from the Lord. But what do we hear about from Jonah? What do we hear him shout from the belly of the fish with those fish bones all around him and the stinky smelliness? Can you imagine what it was like in that fish? He thought he was dead. But what did he learn? He learned a lesson and he prayed it loud. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He knew who was in control. Not him. God was in control. Friends, God pursues us even when we don't pursue him. God pursues us even when we don't pursue him. Psalm 23, surely his goodness and faithfulness, not follow, but will pursue me. All the days of my life. If you think, if in your Bibles, if it says, if you've always known that as will follow me, and that is a translation that I see, get that out of your mind. His goodness and mercy will pursue you like the hound of heaven. Come after you all the days of your life. Sinclair Ferguson in his, in his book, Devoted to God, says, it's always a shock to our pride when we discover that we are sinners and not merely people who occasionally sin. You ever thought about that? It's always a shock to our pride when we discover that we are sinners and not merely people who occasionally sin. You know, we sin, we rebel against God because we're rebels. That's our nature. But we need to understand something about our condition as Christians. You need to understand sin in three ways. The penalty of sin, the presence of sin, and the power of sin. Alistair Begg says it like this. Although we've been saved from sin's penalty at the cross, and although one day we will be saved from sin's presence, we are daily in need of being saved from sin's power. If you're a Christian today, you're saved from sin's penalty you're going to be with Jesus forever. But you need to be saved from, this, from sin's presence and power the rest of your life until glory. That is a struggle you're always going to have. Just like David struggled. 
And let's broaden that out, not just, not just for, for us individual Christians, but let's think about the entire church. Why are we surprised when we find sinners in church? Are you surprised? Now, I want to talk about people who who've have been hurt by the church. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. Those people need to be loved and cared for. People who've really truly been hurt by people in the church. They need to be counseled. They need to be loved. They need to be cared for and given time and safety and encouragement. I'm talking about people who are surprised when they see gossip in the church or when they see some selfishness in the church or when they see grumblers in the church when they see people arrogant in the church. Why are we surprised when we find sinners in the church? The the church is made up of sinners. So I want to rephrase Sinclair Ferguson's quote, where he says, it's a shock to our pride when we discover that we're sinners. It's always a shock to us when we discover that the church is filled with real sinners, not just people who occasionally sin. Never lull yourself into believing that the church is just a museum of spotless saints. It's not what the church is. It's not a museum. No, friends, it's a hospital. It's a hospital for wounded sinners like you and me. That's what I want hope to become more and more and more known as is a hospital for wounded sinners. Sinners who have been bandaged up, who have had heart transplants, and declared righteous in the blood of Christ. It's not a museum for spotless saints. It's a hospital for wounded sinners. And when you start coming to church and you you really hear the message of the gospel, the church offers real life that you don't always get in an online age, especially a selfie age, for instance. Right, a selfie age where we always present our best to the world around us when we post on Facebook, Instagram. It's always the perfect couple, the, the perfect family. I'm reminded of the story of uh, when a family went camping and um, the, un, the husband forgot to pack some essentials and the wife's mad at him and then the, the young boy knocks over the grill and so their dinner is ruined, but yet they still gather and they take that perfect selfie so they can show the world how good they are and good-looking they are and happy they are when it's not true. And so in the church of wounded sinners, a hospital of wounded sinners, we can be grace-givers and be authentic about who we truly are and to remind ourselves, as Del Ralph Davis says, Inexhaustible mercy doesn't dry up easily. That is what the gospel is. Inexhaustible mercy as God forgives and loves those who come to him. The last way God works in the silence is he works unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. Look at verses 5 through 7, chapter 29. These are the leaders of the Philistines, and they say to the king, Is not this David of whom they sing to one another? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you've been honest. Which is funny, because David's been deceiving him the whole time. 
you recall he's been saying, oh, I've been going to kill the, the people in Judah and Israel when he was killing the Amalekites. He's been deceiving him. And he says, and it's, it, to me it seems right that you should march out in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So he's saying, the lords of the Philistines have spoken, David. I can't keep you with me. Isn't that interesting? Unlikely that David finds his personal saviors in the Philistines. The same Philistines who are going to kill Saul are saving David. It's unexpected. It's unlikely. God can use anything to save save his people. There's a story I came across of a, a woman who, a poor Christian woman who was praying for God to, praying audibly out loud for God to give her food because she was poor. And her atheist neighbor overheard her prayer and so to play a joke on her, brought her some bread and some, and some provisions, some drink and some bread and set it at her, at her door and see what would happen. And then she over, he, this atheist friend overhears the lady proclaim praise to God because he, he's provided, he answered my prayer and the atheist gets angry and comes over and says, no, 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 I was just trying to, I was just trying to play a trick on you. God didn't do anything for you. I did it. And the lady said, and the Christian lady said, she praised God still, and she said, actually, you're wrong. God even uses the devil to do his bidding. <laughs> Stung a little bit, I'm sure. But it's true, God can use any, any means possible to save his people. So that's the first idea. God saves in the silence. Secondly, God saves in your suffering. God saves in your suffering. Notice that David's salvation is not all tidy and neat and wrapped up in a bow and easy. He's had a hard time throughout 1 Samuel, throughout this time period. And it's a reminder to us all that even when God is on your side, you don't receive a get-out-of-suffering-free card as a Christian. Notice in the heading, I didn't say God saves you from your suffering. He saves us in the midst of. He saves us through suffering. He shows us his grace and favor even in the midst of trials and pain and difficulty. I love the line in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I actually like it better. You have to kind of read it with the King James. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He doesn't say you're removed from the valley of the shadow of death. No, as I walk through it, you are with me. You see, when David receives this unlikely salvation by getting out from under the Philistines, he finds what in chapter 30? His home, his temporary home, but his family ransacked. Everybody taken, the city is burning. You see, part of God's plan of salvation for David was more suffering for David. So what do we do with that truth? How do we handle it? How do we process it? Well, the truth keeps us from the error of thinking that suffering means that God is mad at us. 
that I'm going through this suffering, so God must be mad, really angry at me. Or on the flip side, if I'm a good Christian, keep keep my nose out of trouble, I'll never suffer. Neither of those are true statements. The path of obedience is the path of suffering for the Christian. So suffering in your life doesn't mean that God's mad at you. Remember the Apostle Paul, when he was called by the Lord, his, he was blinded by this light on, his, on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians. He met Jesus and, and he said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And then he takes him into the city, meets this man named Ananias, who God uses to open Paul's eyes. And as Jesus is talking to Ananias, he says, I'm going to show Paul how much he will suffer for me. Wrapped up in the call of Paul to be this church planter, leader of the church, was to suffer. And brother and sister, that is the same call we receive in this life. But suffering does three important things for us. The first is that it draws us close to God. He uses suffering to strip away anything that we could possibly rely on to save us except himself. That's one of the most important reasons we have to go through suffering. It takes away everything we could rely on. And it's as if God comes to you and wraps his arms around you, draws him closer to yourself. When my children fall and get hurt, which is every day, there's nothing better than just a good hug for, and a good kiss, right? That makes it all better. To bring them near is often what they want most. And so when we push back against, I don't want to suffer, I don't want to go through that trial, know that it's God saying, but I want to bring you closer. I want to wrap my arms around you and bring you near to me. That's what one of the most important things happens in our suffering. The second thing, most important thing that happens in our suffering is that it points us forward to glory. It points us forward to heaven. Some of the most cherished words that I have ever read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is the words of Paul, and he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are. Are eternal. As you suffer, as your outer self wastes away, the more you look to God, the more you look to Christ for your strength, your inner self, your soul is to be renewed day by day. And the third thing that happens in our suffering is we get to show the world what, is, what being satisfied in God looks like. When you go through tragedy, when you go through real pain, the world is watching you. The world wants to know what satisfies a Christian, ultimately. And if it's your stuff, 
that makes you happy. If it's your vacations that make you happy. If it's your comfort, that will not make the gospel sound appealing. But if it's God, if it's trusting in Him, that they see, that they see you're satisfied in God alone, and all this stuff gets stripped away, that makes God look so good, so glorious, something the world desperately needs, a hope that they don't have, that nothing in this world will satisfy. So God saves in the silence, he saves in our suffering, but he also, lastly, saves in the strength that he provides. The strength that he provides. David returns in chapter 30 back to this town of Ziklag. Remember, Ziklag was the town Achish gave him temporarily to to sort of make his home base. And he comes back to a disaster. The town has been ransacked. The Malachites have come in and burned everything. And they've taken everybody. They were defenseless as David was gone with his men. And all the women both small and great, were taken away. It's a disaster. His wives are gone, his children are gone, and not only that, the people are distressed and they, they don't like him right now. When things are going poorly, who do people blame? The leaders. They want to stone him. It says in verse 6. They're not happy. Things are not good. He's distressed. David has made some mistakes, it's true. And so will we. Often we make mistakes in our faith because we try to work the problem, don't we? We try to not turn to God for communion and ask Him to uh, strengthen us, but we're trying to work the problem. We're trying to figure out a solution on our own. And finally we get some encouraging words in verse 6 of what the king ought to do. Always. And Saul has not really done ever. Last line of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That is what we all need to do. We find our strength in what God provides. As I begin to close, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I referred to this earlier in the service Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following. I turn here because Paul uses almost the same phraseology as what we read in 1 Samuel. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Find your strength, not in yourself, but in the Lord himself, in his strength. So what does that look like practically? Well, Paul lays it out in verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're to put on God's armor. We're not to work the problem. We're not to try and figure it out ourselves. We're to, we're to first dress ourselves in the armor that God provides. And he first in verse 12 says, oh, these are your enemies. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, cosmic powers of the present darkness. What he's talking about is the spiritual realm, the devil and his enemy and our enemies. That is our enemy. 
Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. And then you will stand firm. And he lists, I won't go through every single piece of armor, but what it basically comes down to, what it amounts to, is God's word and prayer and the gospel. God's word, prayer, and the gospel. We need to put those on every single day. And as as we do that, we'll be reminded of who we have and whose we are and, and what we have at our disposal in Jesus. One of the reasons we go out and struggle so much is we haven't put on our armor. We haven't put on the gospel. We haven't preached it to ourselves. We haven't spent time communing with God in prayer. And when we do that, we struggle. Brothers and sisters, our job, your job as a Christian, is faithfulness. And God's job is outcomes. Leave the outcomes of your life to God and, and focus in on faithfulness. Focus in on what we are called to do. And one of the things that we're called to do is just to have a willingness to be used by God. Do you, do you, do you sort of wake up in the morning and ask God, use me. Use me in how you want. And to get there mentally, we have to first be humbled that God loves us and saves us and, and has come to us in the person and work of Christ and done everything. It is finished, he said on the cross. It's sufficient. Everything I've done to save you is done. And then become amazed that God still uses us. In the book of Jonah, going back to the book of Jonah, you know, we all know God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah up as a means of spitting him back out into the land and then going to preach to the Ninevites. But we forget that after he preaches, after the repentance of Nineveh, he still struggles He says, I do not like it that this enemy of ours has repented. And God, you're merciful. I don't like you to be merciful to my enemies. You can be merciful to me, but not them. And do you know what else he he appointed? He appoints a worm, Jesus, or God does. A worm. Do you remember what that worm was to do? So as, as Jonah is sitting under this plant, the worm is to come and eat the plant and take his shade away. It's like God is picking on him but it's also to remind us that god has complete and utter control over the whole creation that he's the god of everything he can use if he can use a worm he can use you he wants to use you he delights to use you for his glory but will not be used by god until we see our place under god And here's the amazing thing. God delights in you and delights to use you with all your faults and all your failures, just like he used David. And so when you find yourself weak, find your strength in the Lord. And when you find your strength in the Lord, you'll cry out to him in prayer and say, Lord, help me. And you'll discover Uh, more about him in his word every day as you start your day that way and then you'll serve him sacrificially in the church and helping people and looking for needs to meet you will be used by God if you put yourself under him and stop trying to put yourself over and rely on yourself that's the call of this text brothers and sisters find your strength in the Lord because he will save you he'll save you 
in the silence. He'll save you in suffering. And he will save you in the strength he provides. Would you pray with me? Father, I hope this was encouraging, this text this morning. It was to me. To know that David is really nothing special. He's a struggler like us all. He's not so special that he avoids suffering. He's not so special that there are times he endures silence. And he's not so special that he has to avoid your strength. He needs your strength, and he strengthened himself in your power. So, Father, encourage us to strengthen ourselves in the power you give us, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, and the resurrection hope that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just a reminder that we are starting Sunday school today, so that will start around 11.05, 11.10, and go to 12 o'clock. So please join us for that. Now receive God's blessing upon you as you depart. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.